the knowledge that I did get there were absolutely transformational in both my personal and professional life. I just could have done that content in maybe four or five months at a fraction of the cost. I was incredibly nervous. You know, I'm thinking, okay, I might be fired. I might, I don't know what will happen. I came home from work and she's like, what, what's going on? I'm like, I'm going on the news. I've had enough and took off my tie, slammed down a glass on the table, poured about an inch and a half down the scotch. And I was like, Let's go, Let's go, you know, and set up the camera and boom, it was on. And I, and I, the RCMP needs to shit or get off the pot when it comes to supporting contract policing. They're the cheapest policing. They undercut everyone and they become the Walmart of policing. So that's a problem. And you can see that playing out in right now. I mean, the night transition into the Surrey City Police slash RCMP. Now, here's the... He called his employer's pay structure insultingly unfair on national news while in his police uniform. Former RCMP Sergeant Chris Backus risked his entire career when he stepped up after being sick and tired of the following. Being paid significantly less than their provincial and municipal counterparts. Losing talented officers to those other police organizations. Having to stay quiet because his promotions would be on the line if he spoke up. Being in a workplace where the lack of proper training and equipment was arguably resulting in injuries and the loss of lives of his fellow officers across the country. Chris Backus spent over 18 years with the RCMP. Americans, that's the Canadian version of the FBI with some slight differences. He has a master's degree in conflict analysis and management. He spent two years working for the United Nations working in West Africa. Since then, he's moved on to many business ventures in both the public and private sector. In this episode, you'll learn about the following. Chris's path leading up to his policing career, of course, including how college played a role or didn't play a role in that journey. How important it is to genuinely attempt to understand the people you are negotiating with, no matter how much you disagree with their views. His take on the RCMP losing their biggest policing contract in Canada as the city of Surrey transitions to the Surrey Police Service. What the exact moment was like when he made the decision to go on national television to tell his bosses, quote, I will die on this hill. I've linked both of his interviews on national news in the description below, and I encourage you to check them out. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Chris Backus. I'm so excited to be here. I've heard so many great things about you, Chris. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for very much for having me, Amir. And, uh, you know, great work with the show. I'm a, I'm a huge fan and I've enjoyed all the stories you're telling. It's super great. Uh, thank you for the kind words. Appreciate that. Let's, yeah, yeah. let's start from the very beginning here. How was college talked about <laughs> growing up where you grew up? Yeah, you know, it, it was very... Interesting. I grew up in a very, very small town in central Alberta. Uh, it, the, the town was called Pinoca. It had about, when I was there in high school, about 4,000 people. And there, there was still a very traditional sense of, of what you did after high school. You know, I, I vividly remember in, you know, on the graduation stage, you, you were kind of either going into some sort of post-secondary and, and, you know, in a certain way of thinking that was sort of the way that, that you should go. But then, you know, back in the day, this was in the uh, early 90s, there was a booming oil market and a lot of these vocational, uh, vocationally inclined people that were, you know, uh, looking into the oil sector were, you know, just going right into the oil sector. And certainly, I don't think it was like it was good or, or bad per se. It, 
which way you went, but there was sort of like, oh, he's going, he's continuing on to education and so-and-so is going to go be, you know, a driller in the oil field. I, I think there might've been sort of an implicit, uh, oh, I, I hope my, you know, my child will go to school and which was a mistake, uh, by the way, but yeah. So, so for us, there, there was certainly a familial pressure on me to, you know, like, let's keep going and let's go into university and, and college. Um, but, but, but it, uniquely i i also had a very uh specific dream coming out of high school like there had been a calling for me i i had familiarized myself with uh the career of police work i was enamored by you know i was a young 18 year old man there were certain uh very exciting things about the career that were very very attractive to me um it, it provided with, you know, the RCMP to me specifically was an organization that, you know, had opportunity, not just provincially and, and nationally, but even internationally, there's so many different roles there. So, you know, I, I kind of had my sights pretty dialed in on becoming a police officer at the end of high school, and even more specifically becoming a police officer with the RCMP, which at that time, uh, because of their hiring practices, there were a lot of white males in the RCMP at the time. And so it, it, they were trying to, you know, increase the, uh, the e equitable sort of hiring practices of the RCMP. So if you were a white male at the time, you, you definitely, you know, there was higher prerequisites to, to get into the RCMP. You were, were going to require uh, some degree of significant post-secondary education, whether it was a diploma a degree and, and so on. Um, you know, speaking two languages definitely helped. And so I, I kind of understood that in order to attain what I was looking at, I, you know, I had to go down that route. Actually, take me back. Do you remember the first moment that you knew you wanted to become a police officer and what, what caused it? My father was a police officer with the RCMP, but my oh. mother and my, my mother and my father uh, split at a very young age in my life. So, you know, I, I had uh, sort of semi-frequent visits with my father, but it wasn't a really, really, uh, as a young child, he wasn't a constant influence in my life. So I didn't watch him become a police officer. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't understand his world. I lived with my mother. Uh, and so, you know, many people say, oh, well, you know, your dad, your father was a police officer. Uh, and so was my aunt in the same side of the family. Um, but, but I think there was something else, you know, I, I've often reflected on it. Um, within me, I, you know, I felt always that there was a calling to, be a, be a bit of a pr protector for those that I, I loved. Uh, I felt a reward. I was always kind of rooting, I potentially maybe for the underdog, if I felt they were righteous in, in, in their, in their own regard. Um, but as well, like I, I saw it as being again, a, an exciting career where, you know, it, it had incredible training. If you wanted, you could go off and you could join the ERT or the SWAT team and get incredible training. You could become, uh, so our version of a federal, uh, police officer, like, like the American version of the FBI and, and get involved in that. You could go to a small town and, and police a very small town, which I came from and connect with community. So I think there was all those things, but certainly younger in a younger, uh, part of my life, I was, those reasons were much different than why I was continuing to do it as I, as I finished my journey, you know, uh, you felt you could make a change in the world. You felt that, you know, you were going to make this, this call of call to duty. And, uh, and while those were to certain degrees, uh, fulfilled, 
the 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 reasons you remained in it and your sense of professional purpose did evolve with the journey for sure it's cool uh that um you had that passion that drive for policing so uh, outside of high school what was the next step for yeah. you to go towards it yeah so i mean i'll, I'll take you through sort of a, a very quick reader's digest of the journey without getting too granular at it like i, I sure. knew that i needed that post-secondary piece of education and i knew again very specifically that i wanted it to be in police work so i did a lot of research on like you know what what would best serve my interests uh moving forward and i came across a program it was at uh, lethbridge uh, college in central alberta and they had at that time a very specific uh diploma program that was uh you know a two-year diploma program where you could go and you you took courses that were very specific to police sciences uh so you know there were the generalized social sociologies the psychologies but there also was like handcuffing techniques and interviewing and interrogation and uh the study of the criminal justice system and the canadian criminal code so in essence, it, it was almost like a, a, a miniature and very maybe academic, less quasi-military way of preparing you in a police academy-like environment for hopefully police academy kind of thing. And so it was good. It was specific. Um, I did go to, to the Lethbridge College for, for the two years after that. Um, and, you know, I, I can tell you that in... And I'm not, you know, I have no interest in, in Lethbridge College or that program, and nor have I followed the program over the years, but it was very, very helpful for us. It was very specific. We learned things that were so valuable that later on did help me in my career. As a matter of fact, when I later went to RCMP training, it was those, the knowledge and the skills that I learned when I was at that specific program that actually alleviated a lot of the stresses in RCMP training. I wasn't up all night studying criminal law i wasn't you know i i kind of had understood a little bit about uh all the different you know the skill sets that were were being taught so they were more by the time i got to regina it was more of a essentially a review some new things but uh and so it was very very helpful and 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 i, and I would go even further to say that because it really specifically looked at those other things, not the general. So sociology and psychology did not help me in police work. Those are, in my opinion, those fall on the wayside. I, I, I would not say that those helped me. Um, but, you know, the law, understanding uh, how, you know, evidence is handled, understanding, you know, how um, effective. We had a course there called Effective Presentation and Speech. It was simply, you know, like a Toastmasters, how to stand up and give a presentation in front of someone, even outside of police work. This is an incredibly valuable course in which I continued to use those skill sets for the rest for the rest of my life and still and still do. Um, so great, you know, and and I know, I'll, you know, I'll digress a bit, but those are courses like in high school, I didn't value reading particularly Romeo and Juliet or Dante uh you know uh during during english class like where how, teach me how to have a job interview yeah. teach me how to negotiate teach me how to manage my money teach me how to how to eat and be healthy and and follow a great nutritional uh lifestyle um what i what i didn't need necessarily need to know at the high school level was um you know again 
like even even something as valuable as chemistry well if i was heading in that direction fine but i, I never used it again and did i really even soak soak into it not really so yeah i, I would say that lethbridge did a great job of being very specific and, and moving forward and so it was that it was after that i, I completed the two-year diploma and immediately uh, applied in into the RCMP after that because that was sort of the, the go to. Okay. Yeah. And um, and then if you, I mean, if you want me to sort of continue on, like there was there was going to be a waiting period there uh, for several, uh, you know, what I thought to be several years because the RCMP goes through this feast or famine hiring cycles where they they go through you know hiring and then not hiring. And, uh, you know, it was one of those times where uh, all the baby boomers were still in. There was, they weren't hiring anyone else. Uh, I was told by recruiting, even if you are successful, this is gonna be two, three years you're waiting. They were actually looking at completely shutting down the training academy at that time uh, because there was just no need for, for new resources. But what they did know was the baby boomers were gonna start retiring in the next three to five years and that that would be a huge vacuum to fill after that so they were like there will be opportunity so you know again uh they were like you know you should consider you know completing a degree you you should consider uh possibly learning a second language and so on and so forth and so at that time i i continued to take uh you know i moved on and and set my sights on on a degree uh in in psychology started taking courses there uh, through, you know, through down in Lethbridge in the university, they, okay. at that point, um, there was a lot of dialogue and, and these, now these types of courses were, you know, some of them were remote online courses, others, you know, they were coming from where I had just come from. It was going the wrong way. These were completely useless courses. There was a lot of discrepancy as to how, who, what, what would get credit for the other and so on and so forth all I really wanted. And, and the only thing that was motivating me at that point was to get this piece of paper that said I had a degree hanging on the wall, and then that would hopefully get me into the RCMP. So, you know, the two journeys compared side by side were, were absolutely night, night and day journeys. And, and I think of, of the degree journey as one as being uh, a waste of a waste of a lot of money, and a waste of a lot of time. But as well, um, it was a, almost like a, a very attractive prerequisite to just getting hired. That that was the the bottom line. But then, as I as I was on that journey, then the RCMP called and said, "Okay, you know, we 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 have a date for you. It is going to be about you know eight months out or something like that. I, I can't remember the exact time frame. And it's like you know there are these other federally funded programs through the government to go learn French in Quebec." You know, you could go to Quebec. You could you can move out there and, and try and pick up a second language. And we know we're not we're not forcing your hand on the matter, but it, you know, wink wink. It would be great if you know if you were in sort of that. And I did go out there, and I moved out to um, first you know to Quebec City uh, and took just to come. I moved not knowing a, I didn't take much French in high school, or put it this way, I think I did take French, but I wasn't really incentivized to learn it. I was from rural Alberta, like. You know what? Do you learn so I went out there, and but but here here's the the thing. It, it was a very valuable journey for me because it put me in a situation where I'd never been in before, which is stripping back sort of the ego and the thing of doing something that you, you know you're. I had the functionality in French when I moved out there that was less than like a six year old who was a, a francophone uh, child. So there was children around me that could do something better than me. 
I yeah. remember going to a subway and, and like trying to work through ordering a sub. Um, it was complete immersion. And uh, so it was, it was challenging at first, which was really great. But also you learned very fast. Immersion is the way to go for any language. Immersion is right? the way to go. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and then again, why I would say that this was an incredibly valuable journey for me, it was that as I move forward in my life, uh, personally and professionally, having uh, some degree of functionality in French that I could speak it, understand it. Um, but I, you know, I ended up being there for, again, I, I should probably, but don't quote me on it, but I ended up being there for, you know, just about, just about a year okay. and, you know, made, made friends with Francophone families, lived in even more remote places for small periods of time, like Ramuski and, um, just really, really got to understand. And, and another part about it was there was always this thing between, you know, French Canadians and, and English Canadians. Uh, you know, you, you talked a lot about hearing, you know, some of their journeys around were different. You know, there was a separatist still somewhat movement over there talking about, you know, why they were, their culture was, was different, uh, which I didn't really have an opinion on at the time because I was from central Alberta and, and we, it wasn't a major, major uh, political issue in central Alberta. But then there was this other, you know, like, um, uh, you know, we, what, what I think I took from it was once you got to really get in and become part of community and connect with human beings, uh, yes, they have their own political journey and they have their own identity. And to an extent, the, uh, the French, the, the Francophone Canadian identity, you know, is there's a lot of English and, and they want to retain their, their culture. Um, but when we were sitting around the campfire, when we were having drinks, when we were laughing, when we were doing, we, on a values level, we were the, we were the same, you know, we, we were just human beings that connected. We laughed at the same jokes. We gave the same hugs. When, when, when you broke down the, maybe not even the barriers, but when you broke down what you didn't know about each other and became, you know, familiar with each other that, uh, you know, it was that first aha moment in my life. I'm like, well, how many other people do I think are just different or have different? And when you, when you take the effort to really get to know each other, you, um, you're the same. And, and I think I that, that sort of ends my post-secondary journey because I was at that point that the RCMP then called me into Regina and, okay. and, I, and I started my basic training. Okay. So what I'm hearing, well, first off, it's awesome because it sounds like you focus more on the similarities and the cultural differences when you're around uh, just having drinks and catching up with um, the people in Quebec. And it's funny how much influence that can have on your perspective on people is when you just focus on the similarities, trying to understand them first. I don't know. That's something that you're a big proponent of. Um, just to summarize what you brought up, it sounds, it seems to me like Lethbridge College did a great job in those first two years of providing you with portable skills that were directly applicable outside of college. Yeah. And like you said, whether or not you went into policing, the the public speaking class would have been huge for you, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like there are so many different things. Understanding um continuity uh and evidence and and law like even just law rule of law and our canadian Absolutely. charter of rights and canadian charter of rights and freedoms are, are our fundamental rights and freedoms that every canadian and everyone should understand deeply not so much from a, a legal point of view but from what makes us free and and why canada is different than other countries those those things 
are very very powerful and you know in in a in a time when um those things might be up for discussion about you know are they being adhered to are they being you know uh maintained is is those freedoms still um functioning and 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 providing that that uh, constitution the way they were written that's that's yeah. important they're very very important without them we're a tyrannical dictatorship 100 percent agreed as for you mentioned that um the remote schooling was was useless was that just be, i'm assuming that's because you missed that in-person dynamic which is so critical to build for building your skill sets in something like public speaking or negotiation am i right there or is there something else and no it was just such you know it was just content it, it, there was really nothing that was practical okay. that that we walked away from and we had like a learned skill or a learned piece of knowledge that would that would have made that would have benefited my life in a, in a way that i would have applied the science to it um you know, we, I'm sure we'll get there, but after I started the RCMP, I, I later went back and did a master's degree. And so, you know, in that there, there was again, a bit of a hybrid, like there was some information that I'm like, wow, I just spent months and hundreds of hours and a lot of money studying something that I have absolutely no value, it like took yeah. no value from, but then there was maybe like one or two courses and aha moments where I'm like, okay, this was worth the time. Um, and so you know, I think con like curriculum and content have a, those are the biggest things where I think today education really lets a lot of people down, both yeah. financially and in a practical way. Absolutely. <clears throat> and I think another thing you kind of alluded to there was that, um, you know, brand value of the, just getting the certificate or the diploma, it does have an impact. It's a check on the box for the application process. Regardless of, unfortunately, regardless of what skills came through, as long as it's a reputable uh, college or institution, but we'll, we'll also uh, speed along here. So sure. you get, when was the official start date with the RCMP and how, how did that career go in the beginning? <clears throat> um, I was in uh, training, like police training. I actually, the very first day I went there was uh, on September 18th. I remember the day, uh, you know, quite specifically. And um, I oh, and that would have been in uh, 1999, September 18th okay. of 1999. And then okay. I would have graduated. It was a six months training program in Regina in depot. And, uh, you know, this was back, it's, it's evolved and changed a lot as a learning facility since then. But I was back in the day where you know, you went there, you still slept, uh, whatever it was, 32 or 36 guys in a dorm where bed to bed you know, next to each other, you, you were split by what we used to call a, a snore board, you know, or, and, and, but you had a sort of a pit, a horseshoe pit that you shared with a partner. We call those a pit partner. Um, I still remain best friends with, with my, my pit partner today. It's uh, so there's kind of a, you know, a good bond and you did things together. You know, you got up in the morning, you polished your, all your stuff, you ironed your clothes. It was a very quasi or even, you know, really more military type of, uh, learning environment. And there's a lot of history there. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years of, uh, you know, uh, the evolution in, in into the genesis of the RCP, which was before. I mean, I won't get into the history, but the Northwest Mounted Police and, and so on and so forth. But it wasn't even too long. Like, it was less than 40 years before that date that I got in that they were 
getting up and cleaning horse stables there and, and doing whatever. So, you know, the, the place is always evolving into what um, would be the modern day, I think, requirements of what you want from police officers. And, and it was a, it was a great time. Like well, I enjoyed training immensely. It was in some ways challenging. There was new skill sets that we got to learn in training uh, different from that that was offered before we were now, you know, into firearms training, learning how to sight guns, clean guns, safe handling of a gun um a lot of self-defense that was specific to the uh, the use of force tools that we were given and um and, and as well driving you know we didn't we didn't do that in in so there was a you know a police driving techniques course several of them um yeah and so so you know it was a, it was a really great time it was a time where you were uh going through a stage of your life where you felt like it was high stress because you didn't, you wanted to succeed. And there were benchmarks along the way where if you didn't make those benchmarks, you, you weren't going to succeed. And if after remedial, you didn't make them again, you, you were going to get sent home. And so, you know, there was a high uh, level at times of stress and exhaustion and fatigue and all those things, which I was grateful during that time, as I mentioned, for the, for the, the Lethbridge uh, college program that I'd gone through because it alleviated a lot of that stress. Outstanding. Yeah, it sounds like it really, really helped with it. And I, I've heard from mm -hmm. other friends that have gone through depot training. It's just, it can just be a lot of just content and studying and um, yeah, it can become overwhelming. But if you have exposure to it, then uh, it sounds like you were prepared really well. So um, where were you first stationed? And where did that where did it go from there? Yeah, my first my first posting, I was posted to Prince Rupert, British Columbia. So, you know, I go from central Alberta, small town farm boy to northwest coast of British Columbia, Port City, um, where, uh, you know, it, I, I knew very at the time I got posted there. There was a news coverage about uh, a mom who had these children that were allergic to sunlight uh, and they had she had that the kids couldn't get exposed to sunlight because they, you know, they, it was a health issue. And it was a rare genetic disorder. So she had researched all the places in the world and found that Prince Rupert had the least amount of sunlight and most rain than anywhere else in the whole wide world. And so she had moved there. And then there was, you know, uh, the Canadian government was, you know, determining whether or not they could get uh, residency status after a period of time and, and, you know, so on and so on. But that was what Prince Rupert at that time was on the map for. And I was like, oh my gosh, where have I gone? But, um, but I, you know, absolutely an incredible posting it was the first one it was i was young we were learning we were doing fun, fun things it, it really was a like a great community up there and the four years um to me went by very very quickly for sure i think yeah. though you know what what happens in the first four years or in my journey was i started then to work for really great hard-working co-workers um we had teams or watches that you know they were just really really cohesive and gelled and then i i also had the opportunity to to work for some not so great leaders and teams and i started to sort of experience a little bit about what i would consider the you know the general frustrations or you know it, certain perception like certain situations i, I thought were kind of unfair uh, of running this huge, massive bureaucratic organization. A lot of the policies that are created centrally out of Ottawa, you know, to, to try and 
be applied in, in contract policing in Prince Rupert or Surrey, or then the two man posting in the North pole, you know, uh, they just weren't, they were, they weren't appropriate. They weren't practical. And then there was, you know, this, this, you will, you know, we will do all these things because this is the RCMP way to do it. And so I think I, you know, if there was a frustration earlier on in my career, I'm like, wow, this, this is not a, a, a well-functioning burring machine. Like uh, there needs to be able to be a little more, um, well, I could go, I could go on yeah. in several different directions, whether it was leadership training or, or for how we advanced ourselves, how we trained the resources we were given and the Paul and the standard operating procedures that we were being told to do. I was like, wow, this is not, you know, the RCMP that, that I once thought it was, but it, it wasn't terrible either. Like there were a lot of really, really amazing things about it. So I think I was probably the sobriety of reality in, in, in the first four years was like, okay. Uh, but it didn't, you know, I was frustrated with bad, some bad management at the time and, and so on and so forth. And of course I was wanting to be heard, understood all these different things and, and wasn't getting that. So I think I, you know, learned, okay, I want to be a leader in this career and I'm going to try and lead in a way that I learned from the good ones that I worked for. And I've also learned from, from the really terrible ones that I've worked for. And I understand what kind of harm and destruction it can do to these members when they work for bad leaders. And I think, you know, in the first five years, it was like, okay, I did feel a calling that I wanted to be a good leader as I move forward in my career and, uh, and, and, and try and do this the best way that I could. Yeah. So yeah. I did, I did spend five years up there. I'll, I'll take you very quickly through, through the thing. And then you can, you can ask any of yeah. the drilled down questions, but went to the Comox Valley after that. And um, when I was down there, I did, uh, boy, you're, you know, uh, I think it was about, you know, five years down there. I did five years in Rupert, five years down in the Comox Valley uh, on Vancouver Island. Very beautiful posting, bigger center, more police officers. Uh, it's a different experience altogether. Yeah. Um, and then at that point, I kind of had got, I had, I had been pursuing uh, different kinds of negotiations skill sets and was looking into becoming a negotiate crisis negotiator for the RCMP was looking to, you know, take, and I was looking, the RCMP has different uh, opportunities that they post within a United Nations uh, uh, job, job availability and, and what opportunities might be there. And there was one that came up to go to the Ivory coast for a year and, and be, you know, well, you, you kind of knew that it would be in some degree either, a strategic advisor capacity or, you know, maybe you're a negotiator. So I did apply to that one and I, and I was able to get that opportunity. So uh, after that, I went and, and did a, a year in the Ivory Coast of West Africa. And, and that is sort of now you, you, you get into the UN world uh, and become sort of a UN employee as well and doing, doing that work. I mean, I could talk for hours just on, on that alone, but for, for sake of, you know, getting everything that you're looking at, I can, I can kind of keep going or, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I talk about that. So many questions about the, the UN work, just cause I can, I can imagine the politics of the federal level versus the UN level that you're, that you're kind of dealing with. But, um, I, I do want to get into the stripes off movement. So maybe we can leave the, the UN work for a sure. round two in the future yeah. if you'd like, but, um, let's, um, 
Yeah. Yeah, So, so I think, you know, I did it, I did some UN work there and I came back and then I ended up, um, going then, uh, taking my first promotion, which was to a place called Caslo. It's a very small detachment. It is, uh, it was at that time, a three, uh, person, three member detachment. I, I was promoted at that point from a constable to a corporal. That's the first rank promotion you get in the RCMP. And at the time that was a position that was actually a, like a detachment commander. Cause there was not, not very many, you know, the commander of three people, but nonetheless, yeah. <laughs> and, and, but, but what it did do was it gave you those kind of roles and responsibilities, meeting with local government, meeting with mayors and council, like managing the overall, uh, both operations and the administrations of a, even a small detachment and familiarized yourself with, with those kinds of skill sets and, and what you needed to do. Um, I think, you know, getting moving very quickly is what I, what I wanted to do. And I think it's an important learning for me was I wanted to go in there and put all that aside. And I just, okay, here's my opportunity where I can be a good leader for, for even just two people that I can, I can, you know, try and manage, you know, manage those things. And, you know, with the best, with the very best of intentions, wanting to not be the bad one, wanting to be the good one. I was, I I just still found I I was making some mistakes and not getting the outcome that I was wanting to get. And, uh, and so I began to learn about, okay, I, if I, if I am going to be a good leader, I need to uh, take, I need to learn some more. I I need to, to realize where I'm falling short on certain things. And and then obviously accentuate the things that I'm being told that I, that I'm doing well. And then I came back uh, after that. Uh, to Vancouver Island for a short short period of time, and then again was promote, uh, promoted a second rank, which is now uh, to the sergeant. And I was that's where I ended up being in the uh, on the sun on the Sunshine Coast, and that would sort of be the final posting of uh, in con you know in the RCMP journey contract leasing, and that was a role where I was uh, in charge of the operations of the detachment, you know, all the operations of a bigger detachment. Um, but instead of just, you know, two, I, I, I can't remember exactly how many there were, uh, and I don't want to be quoted on it, but we're talking in and around like a, a 45, 40, 40 member, maybe 40. And, and then you had yeah. all the civilian support staff and everything. So if you include all those people, it was a lot of people compared, compared to where I was uh, from before and in a different role with increased responsibilities, more uh, a higher rank. And all the different things that come into play in this thing, and, I, and I'm sure we'll get to it, you know, because I know I know we're going to get into the no strike movement. But all of the things that are, you know, with the authority comes the pay, comes the rank, comes the if you need, you know, the the the, the influence to have these things, and how that can be done very well, and then how it can be very very dangerous if it if it's not done well and and the destruction that it can leave behind if it's not done well. And so again. Uh, got into those roles with the best of intentions um, mm. and 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 made mistakes along the way. Yeah. Did things well, made mistakes. Sorry, at, when I was in Caslo I, um, and Comox the second time, I ended up getting into finally into the crisis negotiation program of the RCMP. So you go to the Canadian Police College, study there for a, per- a long period of time. You come back, you're sort of in a, a develop, you shadow someone, and then all of a sudden you're attached to all these crisis negotiation calls. And then from there, I decided to go and pursue a master's degree at Royal Roads College in conflict management and analysis. And that's, that was a two-year program 
in that uh, I went there, the RCMP didn't pay for that. That was a personal thing that I wanted to do. You learned remotely, uh, you know, it was an online yeah. master's program, but then there was three residencies that you had to go to uh, that were about, you know, several months in length. So you kind of went back and forth. And then of course you either did like, uh, an end research project of sorts, uh, you know, it, it, some call it a thesis, other call it a, a major research program and, and, and so on. Did and so you forth. ask so the RCMP that... to try and pay for it? Sorry, I'll, I'm sorry, I cut you off. But did you ask for the RCMP to pay for that course at Royal Roads or for the masters at Royal Roads? Yes. Yeah, I did. Okay. And I thought it was directly, you know, I thought it was a skill set that I could return and then get the benefit the force for. <laughs> There are a lot of inconsistencies over time about, you know, what, what courses are paid for externally, but for certain members, I know I've talked to several senior officers that, you know, in my time that were having their, their post-secondary educations paid for within the officer candidate program. So where I do side with the force and where I do understand the conundrum or the difficult situation is that. If you pay for one master's degree, you got to pay for them all. And the, more, the force doesn't have that kind of money. Um, if, you know, there are a lot of members out there that will all of a sudden say, okay, listen, you know, uh, that's, those are expensive ventures. And, and so we, we don't, we simply cannot. And, and so what they're trying to do is be fair. And, uh, and I appreciate that. Yeah, okay. I do. It's, so so there does need to be like, some yeah. subjectivity around that in, in that, which ones are you paying for? Which ones aren't you? I wanted it to benefit for me because at this point I was looking beyond the the horizon of my career in the RCMP and being what kind of skills can I give myself now to really succeed in life uh, as I get later on in my career and, and might do it as well as I, I wanted to be, you know, continue to, to be a good leader. And, uh, and, and of course this was a program that was very, it, it had moments of, of great, knowledge and practicality and specific skill sets that were transferred okay. without a doubt there was a lot that was not and 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 i felt frustrated and aggrieved by that because of the time and the money you're putting in um so yeah. collectively yeah. speaking as a master's program i i would not you know out of five stars i i uh, was the money worth it was the content worth it uh at the railroads uh, three, three out of five stars at best, but those three stars, uh, the knowledge that I did get there, uh, were absolutely transformational in both my personal and professional life. I just could have done those, though, that content in maybe four or five months at a fraction of the cost. I was I got just some quick questions. Do you remember how much it cost at the time? <laughs> Well, it, it all depended on whether or not you want to meet a factor in the cost of being at the residency, you know, yeah. fun, you know, doing that. Um, also, but you know, the costs of financially, I think by the time it was said and done, you're looking at, you know, a $25,000, probably it, that was at remotely and online and then doing, you know, these and maybe yeah. even more, but you know, I don't know, and I, I can't remember specifically, but it was in that wheelhouse. Uh, so, so it's an investment, you know, you're going to take 25, 30 K and go off and get a master's. And then you also have to ask yourself, well, why am I doing this is, do I just want a master's degree to hang on the wall and talk about and, and promote my, you know, perhaps, uh, uh, my ability to be 
transferable somewhere else in the world and work with other people or or you know is this something am i looking for a practical skill set that i think will make me better thinking about the when when you became a certified crisis and hostage negotiator how valuable was that uh, out of five stars um, towards your pursuits afterwards i would say incredibly valuable um the Canadian police college program in which they train you to be a crisis negotiator is incredibly valuable in that you're, you're given very specific set of scientific theories and, and case studies and human behavior studies that, that are very valuable to helping you uh, manage and communicate during periods of human, of human crisis in specific sets of circumstances. Having said all of that, I've gone on after the force. I've been involved in, you know, in, in investments, uh, business, high-level business negotiations, um, personal conflicts within my life, significant change, tragedy, tra- you know, all of it. And what I'm here to say is that the science and the helping you effectively communicate with other people in times of, you know, heightened. Uh, situations of you know dicey situations uh, challenging situations the science is exactly the same whether i'm talking to a jumper on a bridge someone who is in uh, a hostage taking or taker scenario or even negotiating a business deal later on that nobody is going to be able to change their perspective nobody is going to be able to see things differently until they feel understood it, we, we all see the world differently and we look at it through the lens of our past experiences. I'll, I'll give you a very practical example. You and I are at the water cooler. Vancouver Canucks are in the playoff. We're both fans. We're both wearing jerseys. Um, you know, we have a coworker walk by us in the morning. They see us at the water cooler. They immediately well up with tears. They walk past us. We say hello. They don't say hello. Um, what we pro- What we may not know is that person might have been attacked once by someone wearing a Vancouver connectors. So it, we, we completely miss each other in time and space. And, and as I said before, like many of us have been through incredible and sometimes challenging circumstances in our lives. You might've been loved by someone. You might've been loved by your parents. I might not have, I, I might've been a cancer survivor. You, you might have never had a, an illness in your life. All these things shape the way that you see the world. They're not, they're not better or worse, but they're different. And so when, as we come in to see things differently, if we don't take the time to truly try and understand each other and why we see these things differently, then nothing will change. You will only get into a a situation where I call it a ping pong match, where your perspectives are varying and the ball's going back and forth over the table. And you know, the amount of times that ball goes back and forth, emotions become very much heightened. And now it, now you're in a situation where it's like, well, I, it's a win or lose situation. I have to convince you that I am right and, and that you are wrong. I have to. And that's just a, that's just a no win situation whatsoever. And, and so, but, but there, it's difficult to try and understand people. Uh, it's difficult to suspend your emotion and your perspective and truly dig in. It, it, you you don't necessarily, you know, you, you toss words around, well, is it empathy or is it understanding? And I've heard millions of podcasts, hours long. Well, let's just put those aside and say, how hard is it to sit across from someone who is blatantly racist? And what would be your ability 
I, I am, I am so, it's been one of the triggers in my life where I actually am triggered by racism. So how hard is it to sit there and be like, I don't like this person. I don't like the way they are. I don't like their beliefs. And in many cases, if, you know, I'd, I'd like to, you know, take them out back and tune them up until they're, you know, till, till their, their, their perspectives are different, you know, the good old codger way. And, and, but, but how difficult is it now to sit there, susp truly suspend your emotion and, and dig in? Well, why is this person having these views? Why are they doing that? And let's just talk about that for a minute. The world needs yeah. this now more than ever. If you're a vaccinator, how, how are you willing to sit down with an, uh, someone who's not a non-vaxxer who didn't get the vaccine? It, 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 do you believe as, as we we're playing this podcast right now, there's a lot of political geopolitical situations going on in Russia. If you're a supporter of Ukraine, are you willing to sit down and understand why, why the Russians are feel or Putin is feeling the way he is? Are, are you willing to listen to that perspective and vice versa? And I can keep going, whether it's part of the LGBTQ community and whether you're supporting that or you're not supporting that, are you for Bud Light? Are you not for Bud Light? These are all things that if we don't change the way we try and understand each other in society, we, we dangerously spiral down this zero-sum game of just simply trying to convince each other that our narratives are the right one, and we become divided. And I've never really in my adult life right now uh, lived in a time where I felt, and we can, you know, we can get on what, but why we are so divided in, in every way, and in, the, in those those needles aren't going in the right direction. Absolutely. What, what I'm hearing here is that understanding or at least attempting to understand someone doesn't mean you have to agree, but it's critical to understand. Right. It is. It's terrifying because what you may encounter through some of these things is a small, you know, I'll use the word empathy, but like I understand now because of this person's journey, why they feel this way. And how am I, how am I going to deal with that right and and then then it becomes a connection to your values and your and your morality and all of these different things and and that's okay like that's okay to go through that intrinsic journey and 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 be scared to try and understand someone that you don't agree with the most terrifying debate is whether or not that person changes your mind you know and and again that's that shouldn't negate you from from getting in and, and, and trying to, to really lean into the journey of understanding and, and the importance of understanding each other. And, and that's when you'll come to a different place where you, you know, you may be touting the narrative of black. I may be touting the narrative of white or total polar opposites, but, but there are actually a multitude of grays that still adhere to our, our individual interests that would be perfectly susceptible to coming to that, that understanding and then living very loving, peaceful and harmonious lives together. I've done it before where I've been in a disagreement and I like vocalize, I'm trying to understand you. I'm trying to understand you in multiple situations. And I couldn't have foreseen the impact that that would have had on whatever the conflict was. And I, but I've, I've personally learned to trust that process, even just talking to you in the past as well about this. It's so impactful. I feel like this should be a mandatory class in college almost every semester where it's kind of drilled down all the time. Um, yeah, it's super impactful and clearly yeah. it helped you down the line, um, down, down your career with the RCMP. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it helped me in my life. Yeah. I, I mean, it helped me in my life and, and, 
please, like I, I always tell people, I still make mistakes. I, I, I still get into situations where I could be better at this. It's hard. It's a skill set. But, you know, you don't get good biceps working out in the gym unless you go to the gym and work out biceps, yeah. right? So you, you have to be able to put yourself in these situations where you can develop this skill to truly try and understand other people, even when you see it differently, as opposed to just entering into these situations into the ping pong match and, and, and trying to win the, co the conversation or the debate or the policy or, or so on and so forth. And so most of the time when I'm in situations in my life, whether they're business negotiations, personal situations that I, I'm not really overly satisfied with the status quo of the way the relationship is i i try and at least have an encounter with the people that where where they feel understood yeah that's it that's all i you know let me make sure that i truly heard this right because and it it it's it's beyond just the marriage counseling cliche of oh i think i heard you say it because a lot of the times even after you've made these attempts to exchange information you didn't hear it right, that your biases still got in the way and that you haven't completely understood and hurt each other. And so, you know, I, I don't claim to be perfect, but I'm, I am aware of the situations in which, you know, that this is important. I am also aware of this, the moments where perhaps I am not truly capable because of the emotional trigger to, to, to be involved in those exchanges and so on and so forth. But I would say that whether there are conflicts with jumpers on the bridge, whether there are conflicts with internal RCMP issues, with the way the organization used to be in conflict with each other, whether they're high-end business deals where you're getting two parties that you know would be better together to come together, but they are not necessarily seeing it, um, nothing will change until everyone in that uh, system feels understood. 100% agreed. And I think this is something that needs to be echoed quite a bit. Um, now, did you learn that skill in college? Where, where, do you remember first where you first learned that skill? Was it in college or was it just through experience outside of college? You know, I think to be able to start defining it in those terms, it, it would have started in crisis negotiations. Okay. And then it would have uh, extended beyond that into the, like, the master's degree yeah. learning in the program. There's a great, there is a great article. I, I can't remember the author, but it was called, you know, listening with understanding and understanding each other. And, and that was one that, that really resonated with me along the journey. But after that, it became now the more important thing about unlearning about it was, was practicing it, getting yourself, you know, everyone has at this moment, everyone who's probably watching this podcast can just think to themselves about a conversation they need to have with somebody else, a situation they'd like to change and improve from the status quo that they, that they're just not having. And, and I would encourage them to try and first ask themselves, do, are you willing to understand the other person or the other group of people that are involved in that situation? Yeah, that's so true. It's even from like, it's funny, my mind jumps laterally, even from like a technical perspective, I work in tech before we even create a solution to any sort of technical bug or problem, it's we need to understand what 
the problem is really clearly define the problem, really understand who the stakeholders are. Why is, is this a technical issue or is this a people issue or is this, let's get that all out first before we even start working on the solution. But otherwise you can come up with a million solutions, but if you're not addressing and understanding what the core issue is here and with, with gentle curiosity, I would say um, that that's fundamental. Yeah. I, you're you're absolutely right, Amir. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And afterwards, you can still pick up your perspective, and you can still pick up your emotion. You're you're not giving that away. You're just you're putting it in the coat check for a little while. Yeah. And and that's also important to to be there. There is a there is a moment in time in this journey that's very essential for you to be understood. Yeah, a absolutely. So understanding is key, the other understanding the other party and or the other people. I, I want to kind of move into the no stripes movement from here. And because that's, I think it's an important um, leap uh, in terms of how you approach that situation. First off, why is it called the no stripes movement? And why did it happen in the first place? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm going to take a guess at the answer to the first one. I think it's the, no, you know, if it was called the no stripes movement or, or the stripe movement or whatever it was, it was, it was an act, a, a, a gesture in which collectively RCMP members came together, took off the yellow stripe on, on their general duty uniform in protest and to draw awareness to the lack of support and the lack of finances and the lack of, you know, like the poor working conditions and the dysfunction with within the RCM and at, and at that time, um, you know, the, the union stuff came as a, uh, as a consequence to those things. So we weren't thinking that, that centrically, we weren't thinking about a union when we did it, we wanted things to get better yeah. on a, on a variety of different fronts. And so we chose, and, and it was actually a few members in North Vancouver that had chose to, to do that. And then I quickly had heard about it and said, okay, you know, let's make this, uh, let's, let's communicate about this and do on it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, that was why it was called the no strike movement. Why did it come into effect? Why? I mean, I think everyone could probably give you their own specific reasons as to why they tore off their strike. I'll give you mine. Uh, I, I was now in a senior management leadership position in a larger size contract policing detachment. That means you know, we had dozens of police officers in uniform, serious crime, all, you know, traffic, uh, you, 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 you name it. And I, so I understood the working conditions of your regular frontline policing detachment. And I'd been through small, medium and large detachments. The conditions, the support, oftentimes the leadership, all the tools that we needed to do our job were going it was becoming less and less and less we were more and more unsupported we were getting paid less to do more we were shorthanded and it was going this way it wasn't going in the right direction and it just got to a point i remember i'll give you some very very specific examples Please. cars cars that were miled out every police car we drive those things in in you know very taxing fast but in environments where, you know, they get replaced every 200,000 kilometers, I believe was the time, you know, why that's a safety issue. Yeah. And if your wife and your two kids are at home 
And I have to go knock on their door and tell them that you were killed in a car accident because my car wasn't in the proper shape because you were doing your job. That's not what I, you or I or anyone else in that situation wants. So, so, so there's the equipment. Ordering bulletproof vests, we weren't getting them. They were delayed. Members were wearing expired bulletproof vests. We hadn't had, um, you know, the deficits of positions being filled. Internal conflict and strife between grievances and conflict between supervisors and people. Now there's people off duty sick, so we're doing more with less people. Uh, we hadn't had a raise. And a matter of fact, we had had a labor contract with the federal government that had been broken and, and promises not withheld for several years, still waiting in the mix. And so as a leader, I just saw, okay, what kind of action can I do to have the highest degree of impact at this point? Because like morally from my own personal values, I couldn't keep just saying, oh yeah, wait for, you know, wait for your vest or let's just leave two people on, on a Friday night. There was a, I remember this specifically. I got a call once from an RCMP member uh, in the Comox Valley. I'll be very specific, Comox Valley, uh, Vancouver Island, who said, it is like now, I think they're like 80,000 people. And they said, you know, there was more people working at the Tim Hortons last night than there were police officers on duty in that massive city. My goodness. Think about that for a minute. So, so these were the, these were the problems. Now, you know, we just simply, and, and what you have, and, and, and we can get into this, but what you have is you have leadership in the force. And now we're getting back to the good old interview days, but you have these leadership, they're not in the front lines of police. And, but what they should have, is a connected moral contract to represent the interests of those who are on the front lines of police. So as the information of these dire circumstances goes up, well, they're, when, when we're working the night shifts at 3 a.m., they're in bed, they're working Monday to Friday. They're commissioned officers in Ottawa making decisions and they've, some of them have never done operational police work in their whole entire life, right? So there's a complete disconnect. And at a certain point in time, not everyone, but I will say this, as you promote in, in any police agency, you, you start to, you, you get to those ranks because you are able to advance the personal interests of your own advancement of your, of your career before the other things. You get promoted by doing what your boss tells you to do, even if that means you know you're not serving the people below you. That, that's, that's the problem. And, and, I, and I still think if you were to talk about it, and, and certainly the people I talk, that problem exists still today. Yeah. What if we changed the promotional system in that if you wanted a promotion, you have to display certain competencies, your ability to lead, knowledge, all these other core competencies. But what if we went and actually asked the people below you how much they feel supported by you? And that your promotion was contingent on 70% of the people saying they approve your promotion from below, not above. I mean, you're always going to be dealing with performance management issues. You'll always have a couple of people that, you know, your tie, they say your tie's ugly and your tie's not ugly, yeah. right? Uh, but if everyone's saying that your tie is ugly across the board, then guess what? Who's the common? Your tie's up and ugly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, and so if that became a part of the promotional system, now, we're not relying on values and good morals and all these things. Now we're actually incentivizing leaders to adhere to the social contract of the frontline workers because it becomes part of their promotion. What if 
uh, the commissioner of the RCMP was a collective voted position by all the membership in the nation. Why is Justin Trudeau or the federal government appointing that position? That, that, that these people should be able to debate. They should be able to, you know, ultimately campaign to the greater membership as to why, why should I be your leader? And that membership should have the vote. So I will say like the, the continues to be is I, I'm not saying there are not good leaders in high positions, yeah. but I'm saying there that the incentivized process of promoting into these high ranking is, is deeply flawed. Yeah. And until they fix that, you will always have people who, you know, want to promote, advance their own careers and are okay with knowing that there's expired bulletproof vests or whatever the case might be. Yeah. You had said that the, I think uh, to quoting you in the, in a CBC interview, spoiler alert, it's, uh, the system is designed to fail right now. The system is designed to fail and it, it still is designed to fail. Nothing changed. So, so, you know, I, at, at that day, that moment, I talked to the guys in North Van and I said, okay, you're doing this, but like, I, this will, we need to do more. I, we need to get the media involved and start t telling the story. And so I remember calling the CBC frustrated at the office and I was just like in, you know, and I'm like, listen, I'm tearing my stripe off. This is why. And, and you need to talk to me about this. And they said, can you go on the evening news right now? Will you go home and go on camera? And I said, I absolutely, like at that point, I, you know, again, I knew it, either I, I can't just keep going morally. I can't keep going on this journey any longer. Uh, it, it would just, I didn't want to be part of it. So if I was going to stay, something had to change, went home. I was actually very, it's interesting. Now you kind of go behind. I was incredibly nervous. Like, you know, I'm thinking, okay, they're probably, I might be fired. I might, I don't know what will happen. Uh, I, I went home. My wife at the time was at Seashell. I went to the front door. I came home from work and she's like, what, what's going on? I'm like, I'm going on the news. I, you know, I've had enough. And she goes, Are you, you know, really? And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I took off my, my tie, I slammed down a glass on the table, poured about, you know, an inch and a half of, of scotch down the scotch. And I was like, let's, let's go, go, you know, and, and went downstairs and, and set up, set up the camera and boom, it was on. And I, and I remember just telling myself, just tell the truth, just tell the truth don't hide the truth and also give your, you know, give your opinion as to why now you're upset. That's all I wanted to do. And so, you know, I was going to say, this is, you know, these are, this is how I feel. I needed to feel sort of understood <laughs> at the time. And, and it, you know, it, it's just all of a sudden sparked a flame. Now this was not about one person after this, this was all of a sudden about this message resonated with, um, a lot of people from St. John's, Newfoundland, all the way out to Tofino to North, North to Greece Fjord, you know, and all of a sudden people are like, yes, I feel this way too. And everyone just started, you know, it was, we're not quitting. We're not refusing to work. We're just going to start, start at this phase of, of making a gesture to show that we need some attention on these things. And it was, a, you know, it, I think in my life, if I'm reflecting back to that day, um, the second interview, uh, you know, the third um, kind of where we held rallies outside of MPs offices and all these other things. What happened to me was I understood how powerful if, if a group of people can come together, how powerful that they can be um, in bringing about some degree of change. None of that would have happened. So so what happened was there was various you know groups buying to be the union for the RCMP. Um, 
but you needed to have 50% of the vote in order to become that. One of the groups decided, you know, to not necessarily support, uh, you know, pulling off and the other groups remained just agnostic. And so that caused people to switch over and then you had your majority vote. Um, so it wasn't me, you know, who, who created a, a union. It was the, the collective body of the RCMP, the people who were aggrieved, doing something in unison together in a powerful and very professional way that brought about that change. Um, now, we can get into the union, we can get into, you know, the evolution of the union and so on and so forth. But that was fine. After the second, but I'll, I'll put that aside for now. But after, after the first interview, I remember my uh, going back to, to E-Division headquarters and, and meeting with this, the divisional senior management team, you know, and uh, just sort of saying, you know, it, it, it wasn't as adversarial as you think. It was division commander and all, you know, all her, her uh, executive, you know, team management team there. And again, I was just like, I'm just going to tell, tell the truth and do this. And I said, you know, I, they, they actually said to me, the division commander said to me, I don't disagree with the messaging that, that you're doing. I don't disagree with you, Chris, on what you're saying here. Yeah. And I remember saying to her, well, then why don't you speak up? Why don't you come with me? As a matter of fact, after we have this meeting, I'm going back down to the CBC to do another interview um, about this. Why don't you come and at least if you don't agree with me, give more information. Let's debate about this. And they were like, you know, I cannot do that. And, and, and that now I'll go back to the original. They cannot do that because they don't want to distort or ruin the advancement of their careers. That's why they can. And therein lies the problem with the RCMP. And if they were incentivized to do that, if the next promotion of the divisional commander would to commissioner of the RCMP would be contingent on the vote of every RCMP member in British Columbia, then that commanding officer would have likely come down to the CBC and at least at the very least weighed in on some aligned perspectives of what we were doing. Yeah. So, you know, the, this is the, the sort of thing. So anyway, I went back down. I, I mean, you can watch the interviews. I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, reiterate a lot of that, but then it, you know, it was after that, that uh, I started seeing, you know, again, the collective interest movement of, of the RCMP from coast to coast really take on and, and we we can you know we arranged and conducted a few rallies outside of MPs offices wanting to get federal government MPs pressure on the on the federal government to um, to get us more support and, yeah. and, and pay more attention to this issue. And you know, in time, the what was born you know the the NPF the National Police Federation got fifty percent of the votes, but there was going to still be. Uh, time for them to make this application. I, I can't remember the exact legal process they had to be given. But today now, you know, you have uh, the National Police Federation, the union, uh, it came about. Uh, and of course, the thing that is different now that is from before is on all these issues, we, uh, well, the membership now is, is they pay union dues to people who are in positions who can hopefully negotiate for their collective interests yeah. in, in those and, and make those situations better. Is it better? You know, it did, 
are we better? Well, I think the MPF did a really fantastic job in negotiating a, a long overdue wage increase. I, I think they've done that very well. Um, but at, at the same time, and I've always said this, and I'm not, I'm not speaking directly about the MPF, but here's, here's the slippery slope of when you have a union is if those union people, much like the leaders, are not deeply, deeply connected and willing to fight for the, 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 the rights and conditions for the people, if there's alignment otherwise, if they're not incentivized to do that, then what happens is all you have is you're paying a lot of money to union dues and nothing ever, nothing ever changes. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it, that is a situation where you want to make sure that the people, and, and they're, they are elected positions, but you just want to make sure that those people are held accountable and properly incentivized to, to do the, the right kind of negotiation. Is it an easy job? Oh gosh. I mean, I've, I know how it is. No. So many people from East to West coast calling individually about their situation. You know, I need, I need your help right now. And there's probably, you know, not enough of them to, to really properly represent all those memberships. Having said that, you still need that will, that power and that determination to really make sure that you're pushing all the time for those rights. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you, you know, you, uh, you need to be completely aligned with the, the people you're negotiating with either. You have to be able to understand and, but then remember that you're incentivized to fight for the rights of the membership. And um, I'm not in a position to really, you know, comment about how I would feel if I was there because I'm not there. No. Yeah. But, you know, I do hear I do the, hear the members. And, and I think, you know, there has been a negotiation where they're working for more money. Okay. And I, w and I would be looking deeply like what other systemic changes have been made or are being pushed for at the present time or since then that extend beyond just getting a raise. And that would be a question I would have for, for the union at this point. You know, what, what, what else? What else has happened? So many issues. And just for the viewers, like at, at the time that this was happening, I believe the starting salary for an RCMP constable was about $50,000. And their counterparts in municipal police departments like Vancouver City Police were starting at $68,000 or $18,000 difference. It's much higher now today, but that was the difference in, yeah. in who's going to get the talent. Uh, in those instances. Um, another incident that yeah. happened was just, uh, I think you cited it in the interview, was the, the Moncton police shootings where three officers were killed and there was debate over would they have been killed if they had proper firearms and proper equipment? Um, and you cited that and you know, huge, tra huge tragedy. And um, But this is how these things pan out and why people like yourself were speaking up because it's becoming a, it's, affecting day-to-day -day life yeah if you're the union or sorry uh if if i would you know if i was i have no interest in being in the union, by the way, but <laughs> if i was in the union um you know they, they get bogged down with these individual cracks in the wall the, the these individual very hot and aggrieved members along the way that feel they've been mistreated so they get sucked up into, into representing that i think as well you need to find out how to bring about systemic change bigger change that now as you bring about those changes will will uh, decrease the amount of these these particular flare-ups um and so you know throughout my journey i've always felt that when it came to contract policing now when i say contract policing for people who don't understand that i mean this is the wear the uniform 
the RCMP contracts policing service to provinces and small towns along the way. So if you're in you know, central Alberta town, your RCMP, you're, you're contracted, they, they contract that policing to you. Okay. This isn't a federal policing mandate and, and on and on. Those are, those are the front lines of, of policing. The RCMP needs to like shit or get off the pot when it comes to supporting contract policing. And then they're going to say, well, we need more money or whatever the case might be. That is not just the issue. I've always felt, and this is a admittingly among some of my peers, my troop mates, even my, my pit partner, um, is that it's, a, it's an unpopular opinion. But I've always felt that the RCMP should get out of contract policing, that they shouldn't provide that service, that they should put that back onto the provinces, the towns and everyone else to go to the people who are paying the taxes and say, this is truly the cost of policing. And if you want this cost, you're going to have to pay for it. Because if you want a no call too small type of uh, response, where you're kept, you know, whatever you need it for, um, then this is the cost of policing. That does not happen in the RCMP. It, it is just, uh, it doesn't get honestly told to people and then of course they're the cheapest policing they undercut everyone and they become the walmart of policing so that's a problem and you can see that playing out in right now i mean the night transition into the surrey city police slash rcmp now if you're the rcmp from an ego perspective from a contract policing business perspective you do not want to lose that contract having said that if you go to a like an uh, like a, a provincial or a municipally funded police force, it's going to be more money, but you're going to get more funding, and you're going to do all these things. So, it it is a model that when you look at it, you know, look at some of the municipal police forces. They still have their systemic issues, but they're they they're paid more money. They get more, you know, they have a strong union. They have more manpower. Their working conditions and the service, like the contract leasing service that they provide, is much different than you'll get if you're uh, in. And and how on earth do you come up with sort of a consistent way of policing all these places? Same pay for for members who are living in out east, where the cost of living is less than members. How about the members that are, you know, in Greece Fjord, the more northern detachment of all, you know, they're living up there. It it would be better off to allow these geographical places, their 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 governments, their their budgets to manage these things. And then, you know, and so mayors run on platforms that I can improve the the cost of policing or I can improve the service quality, but it's going to cost money. And then other mayors come along and they say, oh, no, you know, this was we want we want the RCMP back and, and so on and so forth. What I will tell you about the Surrey situation right now that I, you know, I have no problem sharing is whether it should remain the RCMP or Surrey police. I, I again, I don't think the RCMP does a great job at contract policing. I'm not saying that, that they're not not doing a good job. There are hundreds of members that are putting their lives on the line every day and providing very good quality. But I, I think the model is just different. Now, if you want to, you know, create uh, this this police force and you've taken millions and millions and millions and millions of my taxpaying dollars, if I'm a resident in Surrey, to do a transition over to a municipal police force, we're almost halfway. And because of a, a political pissing match between a former and current mayor, uh, we're going to start transitioning either back the other way because we want to switch the dial, or now you've got the province offering to fund the rest of the way, uh, a majority of that amount. And and because of ego, I'm not willing to go. I'm just outright frustrated with the whole situation. 
it's a total political failure, in my opinion. And who are the victims? Surrey taxpayers, RCMP members in their, do they have a home? Do they not have a home? What should I, where should I go? Am I involved in my career right now? Or am I going to be packing my bags? Surrey city police members, I'm part of this new force. Does anyone like me? I, do I even get to, are, are we even one? There's two police forces. You can bet there's cultural divides happening in there. They just want to police a community. Now they're wondering if they need to pack their bags and start over. They've left the RCMP, a lot of them, and other police forces wondering what the heck we're going to do now. So there are, are zero winners at this point, zero winners and multiple losers. And all it is, is uh, in my opinion, political egos that are getting in the way. Would you have any advice to the stakeholders that are negotiating these deals? I, I believe that one mayor is just trying to, uh, the hill she wants to stand on is she was reelected to keep the RCMP. That's, that's her end game, right? And the one before that, you know, he said, I will get rid of the RCMP and, and you know, kind of, so that's the zero sum game, which I think uh, just, it fails everyone. What's the problem you're trying to solve? The problem you're trying to solve is that you're trying to improve the quality of contract policing. Uh, that, that there's that there's just there were some frustrations that the RCMP was not able to provide. So what are the frustrations that the public was feeling? What are the frustrations and barriers, truthfully, that the RCMP was experiencing? Why were they not able to provide a quality of service that led to this discussion? Is it lack of funding from the federal government? Is there internal strife? Is our leaders not properly representing the front line? Well, what, what is it now that the, the SPS is designed to do? What, what are the changes that they want? I think they've got, you know, I happen to know some of their senior management. They're very well intended. I was able to follow some of their cultural initiatives since they've started. Um, they've done very, very well at trying to start something new and fresh. Um, at this point, and you've got the province yeah. saying like, listen, we, we will fund, we will alleviate some of this financial pressure from the taxpayers at this particular moment in time. I think it's a failure to go back now. And, and I, and I get that people will hate that, that opinion and so on and so forth. But from a practical point of view, looking at the problem that you were trying to solve to begin with, you're already there. And I think that, you know, if you give it time to truly execute its way, I think you will have solved that problem. And perhaps then the RCMP can look at it and go, okay, we don't want to lose other contract policing detachments in Canada. How can we get better too? And, and so, you know, it's, uh, uh, do we need to be more honest with the federal government and, uh, you know, the, uh, the the federal agency that funds the RCMP? Does there need to be a change? Do we need to incentivize our leaders differently? Do we able to need to provide better conditions for people working in these uh, cities that are high cost of living and, and so on and so forth? And what can we do to get better so that we, we don't necessarily, if you want to stay in contract policing, or perhaps you have a conversation about the RCMP getting out of contract policing. Love it. Yeah. And, and for the viewers out there who don't really understand this issue, this is the largest, I believe this is the largest contract the RCMP has. Surrey is the biggest municipality that the RCMP has. So this is a major contract loss for them. Um, but speaking as someone who lives in Clayton Heights, which is technically in Surrey, feels more like Langley, to be honest, but that's beside the point. Um, this is also a major area for gangs and turf wars and all these issues that, and we need quality policing. It's a hot topic. 
So uh, I'm very interested to see where this goes and I appreciate your your insight into this. Yeah, I think there's another important part because I, I always have this, uh, people always tell me, oh, you're always coming down on, on the leadership of the RCMP. You're always coming down on this. I, I mean, so let me wear the other hat for just a second yeah. to, to balance that out and, and truly make them feel like I know, like they're understood here in this situation. And, and the flip side of it is this, the public needs to realize that the, the level of policing service that they want and what they're paying for that policing service are not properly in alignment. So if you want a, a police officer in your school doing school liaison, if you want to see the guy in the park on the bike waving and, you know, making sure the parks are safe, if you have a break and enter in your home and you come home, there's nobody there, but they stole your TV. And they, if you, if you're now that that's very traumatic for a normal person to know that their home was broken yeah. into, but you, you know, if you want a police officer there within 15 minutes to, to, to bring someone, victim services, take all your information down, fingerprint the door handle, if you want that in every case, then you're going to need to double the amount of police officers that you put on the street right now, and that means you're going to have to pay double. So you, if you want that, you're gonna, you get what you pay for. And the public is used to being on a dollar store of policing uh, fees, uh, but wanting a Gucci style service. And so they need to get a wake up call in, in that regard as well. That needs to change. Excellent. Yeah, that's a very hot topic. And I'm so glad I got to get your insight on it. Uh, especially this is like a hot story right now with updates every day in the news as to what's going on. So I really appreciate that. It's very valuable insight given your experience. I love hearing about what was happening behind the doors with um, your conflict with the RCMP and how you approach that situation, what it was like at home. I can, I can only imagine what it's like in the household as well, like when you're putting your career on the line to speak out. And I know there's a lot of members out there that are grateful that you did that and um, took the, the brave step forward to get that done. And I, I love hearing your story about the college and the difference, the programs, the masters, how that's impacted your experience going forward and how much of that was forged in your experience as well. And uh, ultimately, I'm just grateful that we had the chance to talk and get to explore all these different avenues. Um, with, with that being said, is there anything you just want to end off on here? No, you know, you know what, Amir, like just I, I commend you for what you're doing here. I think that as you know, as we move forward, it, obviously, the discussion about how you learn in life, and, and how you invest both your time and your money to make sure you're maximizing uh, the outcome of learning and, and whether, you know, what, what are the best ways to learn? I think those are evolving very quickly in the world right now. And so I think having a podcast where you're discussing journeys and stories about, well, well what worked and what didn't, I think it's an incredibly valuable tool for uh, both young and old people to, to really understand how how they want to approach their own specific journey so good for you for doing what you're doing this is an amazing podcast and keep going strong for sure thank you so much for the kind words really really appreciate that you know um thanks for your final thoughts as well if someone wants to reach out to you and um how, how do people find you um yeah people can find me i am on linkedin um you know i i left social media uh just for my mental health 
like I, I just that wasn't a, being a net positive yeah. of uh, of experiences there. So I, I'm not on social media, but there's certainly you know if if people want to reach out and and have discussions, I'm always open to have that great discussion. Try and understand different perspectives as well. And uh, yeah, but thank you for having me for sure. I'll put it right in the show notes here in the description. All right, Chris Backus, thanks for your time today. And to the audience, audience, Chris Backus, thank you so much <laughs> once again for your time. And uh, to the audience, yeah, hope you all have a buddy. fantastic day. Take care, everyone. It's important to note that the opinions I express here are that of my own and only my own. They are not of the employer that I might have at the time that you're watching this recording.